We've all seen the movie before. The parents go out of town. They leave the oldest son in charge. They tell the son, no parties. And the son says, you can trust me. It'll be quiet while you're gone. Nothing will happen. And the minute they back out of the driveway, he invites a few friends over. What's a few friends? It'll be quiet. Those friends invite a few of their friends and a few more friends. And they're all just hanging out until someone pulls out some beer, right? It's always beer, the gross, cheap beer. Before you know it, there's a pool. There's always a pool in these movies. The pool's filled with teenagers. A giant inflatable cow somehow finds its way into the pool. Maybe it's a golden inflatable cow. A crowd of teenagers begin chanting for their host, this respectable son, to climb onto the roof of the garage and to jump on this giant inflatable golden floating cow. And well, he has to please his guests. What will they do if he doesn't? It's already getting kind of out of hand. So he begins to climb onto the garage, finds his way to the peak, and that's when the parents return. Their flight was canceled. The trip's off. They show up unannounced just to see their son on top of the garage in a swimsuit. Nah, probably his underwear, right, in this movie. And he's about to jump and to yell out. And you know what happens from there. They're furious. How could their son have done this? They trusted him, but never again. How could he disrespect their property, their rules, them this way? And in a rage, the parents decide, that's it. We're killing everyone at the party and starting over (laughs) and having new kids. The end. Now that's not the way the movies go. The standard comedy trope turned into a slasher film. But it's biblical, right? There's precedent. I mean, did you hear, like really hear the text this morning? Now, fast or rewind, I guess, back a week ago. And we had this moment where Moses receives the law from God, the Ten Commandments. And since then, uh, the story that we've skipped... Moses has gone down from the mountain. He's read all the words of the law to the people. And the people's response was, eh, that seems kind of hard, Moses. But together in unison, they all say, all the words of the, that, that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses, just to make sure they mean it, builds an altar to the Lord. They had this covenant ceremony. Somehow there's blood involved, exchanged between God and the people. The covenant is sealed in blood. And then Moses organized his brother Aaron and 70 of the tribal elders. And together they go back up the mountain part of the way with Moses. And this incredible story in Exodus 24, which would have been a much better text to preach than this one. We're told that these leaders, and I'm quoting from Exodus 24, that they saw the God of Israel. They see God. And the text says it describes what they saw under God's feet. There was something like the pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. God did not lay a hand on these leaders. And also they beheld God, and it says they ate and they drank. There's always a meal when God shows up. And then God leaves the people, or Moses leaves the people there, leaves the elders there, and Aaron to go back down the mountain. And Moses continues that journey up to the top where he had received the Ten Commandments. He enters back into that cloud of God's presence and has this long, 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 boring conversation with God. You can read about it in the Bible. And while he's having this conversation, meanwhile, Aaron and these 70 elders who just saw God, who just ate 
and drank with God, are now in charge of the Israelites in Moses' absence, and it takes forever for Moses to return. Days, weeks, months, in Scripture it's chapters. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, our text began this morning. The people gather around Aaron and they begin chanting to Aaron, come, come, make gods for us. Who shall go before us for this Moses, the man, not God, but Moses, he's the one who brought us up out of Egypt and we don't know what's become of him. Let's move on. And you know the rest of this movie. Last week, God tells them the very beginning of those 10 commandments. I am the Lord, your God. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So you shall have no other gods before me. And don't make an idol for yourself, not of me, not of anyone or anything. Do not bow down to them and worship. And the people said, yes, every word that the Lord has said we will do. And this week, God goes out of town. And Aaron makes a golden calf out of their own gold jewelry. The people see the calf and the people say, hey, look, these are our gods, O Israel. These are the ones who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron, well, Aaron, give me more credit than maybe what we often give him. He realizes, okay, maybe I've gone a little too far. So he tries to clean it up. He builds an altar to the Lord as Moses had done uh, just a little bit ago. And he says, tomorrow's going to be a festival for the Lord. Everybody, tomorrow, bring your offerings. We'll have a meal. And the text says they all come. They bring their offerings to this altar before the Lord as if they're going to worship. And then it goes, gets out of hand. They revel, Scripture says. It's this all-out, drunken, pool-jumping party in the middle of the wilderness with a golden calf. And that, of course, is when God shows up. Go down at once, God tells Moses, your people. Did you hear that? Your people, not my people, your people, whom you, not I, brought up out of the land of Egypt. They have been quick to turn aside from the way I commanded them. And listen to this. God says to Moses, I have seen these people, how stiff-necked they are. And at this point, They're not the best people. They've complained. They've broken their promises. It's been quite a journey thus far. So God says, now let me alone. Get away, Moses. Stand out of the way so that my wrath may burn hot against them. And I may consume them. And you, old man Moses, I'll make a new nation out of you. Kill all the partying teenagers and start out with new kids. Now what do we do? with that. Last week, Marty talked about the difference between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. And I want to push back just a little bit. I'm not, I'm not correcting Pastor Marty. I would not dare. Just clarifying. <laughs> because there is a difference, as even Don alluded to this morning. There's a difference between what we see in the Old Testament and what we see in the New, what we see of Jesus in the New Testament. If you were here last week, you heard Marty tell us that in the New Testament, the definitive word on who God is is Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the truth. We can't forget that these, though it seems different, these are not two gods. There is but one God. One God whose anger burns against Israel. One God who wants to kill them all and start over. And one God who becomes human and lays down God's own life for the sake of all stiff-necked people. The same God from the beginning, from in the beginning, 
to the very end of Scripture and to today. And yet reading it, it seems like something is different, like something changed. Now, of course, the story isn't over. The movie continues from here. God, the angry heavenly parent, wants to destroy them all and make a new nation out of Moses. But Moses intervenes, maybe because Moses realizes he's a little too old for kids. I don't know. But notice what Moses says. God, in rage, called the people your people. Moses, you brought them out of Egypt. But Moses responds. Scripture says he implores the Lord his God, saying, Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, not mine, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Remember that, God? Besides, if you kill them now, what will the Egyptians think of you? And remember Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You liked them. You promised them that you would always care for their ancestors. Don't forget about that promise, God. And God says, let me alone. But Moses ignores God's command and stands up forcefully to a rageful God. Moses reminds God that these are God's people, not his. That this was all God's idea. Moses was just tending his sheep, enjoying life in the suburbs when God showed up in the burning bush. God started this. And Moses appeals to God's reputation before the Egyptian. Moses reminds God of his promises. And scripture tells us, and the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring against the people. And God wants to destroy the people. Moses stands up to God, and God changes God's mind. Have you heard that verse before? We talk a lot about God being unchangeable. The fancy word is immutable, unable to be changed, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, almighty. But do we ever talk about God whose mind changes? And yet there it is right in Scripture. What do we do with this? No matter how you look at it, this text kind of messes with our preconceived traditional understandings of God. And I see three options here. One, we could just skip over it, say amen, ignore it, and pretend we didn't read it, and move on. We're pretty good at that sometimes with difficult questions. But once we start down this road, it's hard to go back. So maybe there's other options. We, We can read this and say perhaps, well, maybe God is more like humans than we thought. God changes, God grows, God adapts. There is a a growing field of theology that's called process theology that suggests just this very thing, that God is in process, the divine is growing and changing. And I believe it's deeply compelling to think in this way. After all, the idea of God never changing didn't really come from Scripture so much as it came out of medieval theology. God is learning. If you read Scripture, God is learning how to be God. Just like we learn how to be humans. And this isn't the only story in the Old Testament, by the way, that shows God changing and progressing. Moses argues with God again. This doesn't mean that God started off angry and then became loving. But it could mean that God made this commitment. This commitment to this people that God created. And then God learns what it means to be committed. Like two people who commit in love to one another. You live into that covenant. Maybe had you known 40 years down the road what it meant, you wouldn't have entered it. Maybe you would. But you learn, you grow, you adapt, you change, you say you love, and then you learn what that means. But love 
remains the same. Is this the same way with God and us? That's one option. Another option, as I see it, is that this this text may reveal more about us than it even does about God. Yeah, as parents, if we came home to our children going crazy on the roof, about to jump onto an inflatable golden calf in the pool, we'd freak out. We'd cuss. We'd ground them for life. We may think, possibly, I mean, just a wild fantasy about ending it all. But we wouldn't kill them. We wouldn't do it. But God, too often, this is what we expect of God. Maybe as you heard the text read, you're like, oh, yeah, that's God. God's rage burns against us. God wants to punish us for our sins. He's just holding onto the edge of the seat, waiting to send the wrath. This text plays into that stereotype. It leads us on. And right when we're ready to say, I told you so, I knew this is how God was. God cannot be trusted. God should have never messed with his people. They were better off in Egypt. Moses changes God's mind. In a few chapters, God will join Moses up that mountain one more time. And the story is this beautiful story. God will hide Moses in a cleft of the rock, a little inlet in the mountain, and God will pass by and Moses will see God's back. And as God passes, God will say, the Lord, the Lord, a merciful, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God passing before Moses as if to give that definitive word about who God has chosen to be. That God will always act in love and faithfulness. Did God change God's mind? Well, that's what scripture says. So I wonder how hard, I wonder why it's so hard for us to change our minds about God. And Moses did argue with God, which I think expands and widens the possibilities of religious speech. Maybe we don't have to be so polished in our prayers But if you think about it, really, maybe God didn't change at all. Moses reminded God of God's true character, of his promises, of who God said he would be. As we will sing at the end of worship, great is thy faithfulness. The song actually says, God who changes not, or something like that, ironically so. Because that's who God is, faithful. From this truth, God will never change. And this text seems to suggest that there's been a time or two or three or more where God has really wanted to back off of that promise, to say, you know what, they're not worth it. But always God returns to love. God is challenged by this promise of his unfaithfulness. God refuses to walk down the road of retribution, I can't say it, in rage. And God became Jesus, Scripture tells us, and gives his own life up on the cross, the definitive word of God's love, God's choice that this is what God is, the one who would die. And anything of ours, anything, any view that we might have of God that does not end in that way, that is not compelled by this life-giving love, that must change. Because God refuses to walk down this road of rage. God's road is one of mercy and grace, of steadfast love and faithfulness for all the ages. Then, now, and always. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us sing of God's mercy.